Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that even as we come now to this, which is your very word, that we won't take it for granted that this won't be just another ho-hum Sunday, but Father, that we realize that you are here and that you speak to us. And so, Father, we pray that we would listen. This, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 5. 1 Timothy in chapter 5, please. I want to read a little more than I've laid out in your bulletins. I want to read through verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, please. Hear the word of God. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith, faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of old, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So it would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly Widows. Now, in some ways, we should have expected this passage. The reason being that Paul lays out, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to Timothy, younger man who was the pastor in the church in Ephesus, ancient Ephesus. Paul writes to Timothy and he lays out his purpose for writing to him. You remember, it comes chapter 3, verse 15. And Paul says that I want you, Timothy, and the church, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves, how to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress or support of the truth. And now, as Paul lays that out, everything that he's going to be talking to Timothy about is how the church ought to behave, how to conduct itself as church. There's some specific stuff to Timothy as the pastor but also it it informs how the church is to be the church. And in one sense, Paul lays out what is true of the church in the context of mission, that is, that we're to be a pillar and support or buttress of the truth. That is, what's important to us is that we have the truth that God gives to us in the gospel, gives to us in the scripture. We have that truth. We're stewards of it, not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. And so we're to maintain its purity so that we can live it, maintain its purity, so that we can spread it. And when we live it and when we spread it, it won't be diluted. That it will be true truth, if you will, the very truth that God has given to us, the very truth of the gospel. And there'll be no mistake about that. So Paul says, understand, Timothy, understand, church, that you're a pillar and a buttress of truth. So hang on to it, guard it, live it, spread it. But not only that, he gives us a metaphor, an illustration. He says to us that we are the household of God, meaning that God lives among us. But not only that, meaning that we're a family. 
a household is a family. And so now as Paul begins this chapter 5, after all that he's talked about, he's dealt with false teachers and he dealt with a number of other things, he now speaks to Timothy, explaining church in the context of caring like a family cares. So we see language like mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and even widows and others that are in need. We have that all laid out for us, that kind of language. And Paul is assuming that Timothy understands family well enough to understand what he's talking about as he lays this out. And churches understand family well enough so that as Paul lays this out, we are to know how it is that we're to live. We should have a reference point for that and say, oh yes, I know what that means. I know how it is that we're to live as the very is the very household of God. Now, family isn't the only illustration, the only metaphor, if you will, that the Scripture uses for us to help explain who we are. The Scripture speaks of, of, of the church as part of this great kingdom of God. And so, as kingdom of God, we share a common king. We share a common um, rule. We share a common submission, if you will, we're to be a holy nation, another, another image for us as we understand ourselves. We're to be holy, we're to be pure, we're to be nation, we're to share a common heritage, a common almost spiritual nation, if you will, together as a, as a people. Uh, we're to be a temple, the very temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives among us, so we share the very common presence of God. Commonly, we share that it's ours to be shared together. We share this common assembly together to worship in his presence. Uh, we share uh, the common doctrine that, that informs this temple, this group of people who live to worship, live to worship God. We're a priesthood, another image given to us. Uh, and that means that we have access to God as a priest has access to God. Each of us has access to God through this one who is, in fact, our great high priest. We're a body, meaning that we're independent. We share this common life together. We share this common ministry together. It's by way of one another that God often meets our needs. We're a body together, even as we share, even as we minister, even as we live together. All of those metaphors, all of those images. But now this one of, of family, really. And again, no surprise that Paul would use this metaphor, this image for us uh, as family because we realize that family was created, if you will, or instituted in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we see it as Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. And he says to them, a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. In that moment, we see the image of God being expressed by way of husband and wife joined together what we call marriage. And then, obviously, this union between the two of them that would lead to children to populate this earth, populate this place, this garden, and throughout the earth. Now, presumably, if Adam and Eve had not sinned and had been joined together as husband and wife as they were, they would have had children and populated this earth. They would have been given the right to eat of the tree of life, and we would find this heaven on earth, if you will, this place of the presence of God amongst his people. But we know what happened. We know that Adam and Eve, in fact, sinned when they did. That disrupted everything. It marred the image of God that they were to have and reflect so that no longer did human beings reflect the image of God as they should. Not only that, it affected marriage, obviously. Rather than being a place of security, it would become a place for at least some of insecurity. Rather than be a place of fidelity, it would become a place of unfaithfulness. Rather than to be a place of provision, it would be a place where others would not know that provision. And so, so we see that rather than be a place of love, it would be a place for some of hostility. And thus we see the impact of sin upon marriage. We see the impact of sin clearly upon family as well. And so as human beings developed family, yes, still, but yet not as it ought to be. Nation, yes, as families congregated together to form society. Uh, nations together, yes, but not as it was meant to be. And so we see throughout the scripture really two strains of community happening. 
two strains of family, two strains of nation. All the way back, Garden of Eden, Seth, godly line. Cain, ungodly line. Noah, godly line, son. Ungodly line, other sons. We see it even in the context of Abraham. We find that he is to have great numbers of descendants. Uh, The promise to him that your descendants will be more than you can count, more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky and all that. But we realize that not all who came biologically, if you will, ethnically from Abraham shared the same faith of Abraham. And so we have even in the midst of Israel those who believe and those who don't believe. In fact, it comes very clear to us in the New Testament. For instance, in the book of Romans in chapter 2, verse 28, we read this. I'm sorry, verse, verse 28. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who was merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, I want to tell you that that the promises made to Abraham were promises made to those who believe as Abraham believed. So just because you come from him biologically doesn't mean you share the same faith. You see these two kinds of units, this family, yes, but then the spiritual family as well, this nation, yet, but yet this spiritual nation as well. And then again in chapter 4 of Romans and the middle of verse 11, and speaking of Abraham contextually, Paul writes, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham before he was circumcised. In other words, Abraham is the father of all who come, who live, if you will, by faith. We see it again in, in Romans in chapter 9 and verse 6. Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, you see it. You see the spiritual family developing as those who have the faith of Abraham, thus those even in the church, obviously, who believe in our Lord Jesus. And finally, this in Galatians in chapter 4. Actually, let me see. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. We read this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And then, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Again, this spiritual family that's developing here. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that when Paul speaks of the church, he speaks of this family, but yet in the context of this, of this spiritual, this spiritual family. Um, nothing new. We read in the New Testament of dual, all kinds of things like dual citizenship. We're citizens of heaven, but yet we're citizens of the earth at the same time. We're citizens of, we're we're members, if you will, of our biological families, but yet we're members of the spiritual family as well. Hopefully, there's some overlap there in the spiritual family and biological family, but but not always. And we know that. And so we see it. Now, if I may just take a moment and dispel a spiritual urban myth. And it's the spiritual urban myth that causes a great deal of trouble. And it's the spiritual urban myth that says this that all human beings, by nature of being human beings, are children of God. We hear it all the time. But it isn't true. By being born means that, yes, we're in the image of God, but yet that image is marred. And because of sin, it means we're separated from God. 
than in coming to God separated from him. If, you, if we come simply on our own, we come to God and we know him as judge, not as father. In order to know God as father, one must be born into his family. The scripture refers to that as being born again with this rebirth. And that is known, that is one knows one has been born into this family of God because one believes in Jesus. That's the evidence of this new birth. Those who are thus born into this family are children of God. Notice how the scripture puts it in John in chapter 1 and verse 11. He came, and this is speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, those who are children of God have the authority, the right, to be called children of God. What gives a person the right to be called a child of God? What gives a person the right to be called a child of God is to have been born, spiritually reborn, into this family of God. My children, biologically, have the right to say that they're my children. They can claim that. Um, and sometimes I'm pleased when they do. Uh, they can claim that, right? They're my children. They have the right to do that. Those who've been born into the family of God because they believe in Jesus are those who have the right to say that I'm a child of God. Notice how Jesus lays this out in John and chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 39, uh, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders of the day who are Jewish, and they're claiming to be children of Abraham. Notice how this discussion goes. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. If you're doing the works, uh, uh, if you, you, you are doing the works your father did, they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he doesn't stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons why you don't hear them is that you're not, you're not of God. Now, that's a very solemn word, obviously. Jesus has the right to say that kind of thing to someone your father is the devil. But we see the truth of it. Not all are children of God in the sense that all belong to him, that all call upon him as father. In fact, Jesus put it like this with his disciples, again on that fateful night that he was betrayed, John 14, verse 6. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how is it that any can come to God who is Father? How is it that any child of God can come to God who is Father? Only through Jesus. There is no other way. So only those who come to God through Jesus can know him as Father. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. And so you see, it's these ones who have the very spirit of God, that is believers in Christ, who uh, are able to call upon God as Father. And finally, this 
in Galatians and chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, uh, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. Now just getting this point, that not all are children of God, only those who can call upon God as Father, and the only ones who can call upon God as Father are those who come to him through Jesus, that is, who are born into his family, who know him, those who are children of God, would, would, would enable us to avoid all kinds of huge theological errors, like the one that was written on our newspaper yesterday. The question that was given for a couple of pastors to answer was this. Is salvation earned or given? Here's an answer. The promise of salvation comes from God and can only be given by God. It's true. An understanding of grace is helpful here. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unconditional love of God given willingly and freely to all of God's children. That is true. God's grace is given to all of God's children. Although Christians have always recognized the terrible contrast between heaven and hell, it doesn't make sense to me, I'm reading this, it makes sense to me, but not to him. It doesn't make sense to me to believe that a loving God would condemn a child to hell. And that's true as well. A loving father would never send, condemn one of his children to hell. No child of God is condemned by God, is condemned to hell. If we're not saved by good works, why would we be punished for not doing good works? You see the confusion here, because it leads this pastor to universalism. Actually, it leads him to say this. Does this mean that all are saved? Is some act of faith necessary before death in order to be saved? Is there a judgment day where, we, where, uh, where there will be some form of accountability for our actions? I don't know the answers to these questions. But I do know it's not my place to determine the eternal fate of others, and I don't want to place any limits on the grace of God. No one does. But you see, the conclusion is a true one, yet a false application. The true conclusion is that no child of God is condemned. The wrong application is that we're all children of God. Therefore, all will be saved. That's the same thing that underlies that book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, a book called Love Wins. It's the same premise that God loves all our children of God. Thus, God would never, would be immoral for a father to condemn his child. Thus, he won't. And the point is, that we have a spiritual family and we're in the spiritual family of God. And only in the spiritual family of God by way of this new birth that's the spiritual cause and our faith in Jesus. That's the result of the new birth. And thus that makes us children of God. And it's completely by grace, you see. It isn't because we've done anything to deserve that. Spiritual rebirth is something that's done to us and for us, not by us. Just as one's physical birth is something done, not by the birthee, the one being born, but by the parents. And here the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. And who does that, it's completely gracious. We don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite. Not only is it undeserving, but we're ill-deserving of it. We get the opposite of what we actually do deserve, you see. That makes us children of God. It's completely gracious. But not all are children of God. Not all can call God Father. Only those who come to him by faith in Jesus. Please, be clear about that. All right? Be clear about that. We're not clear about that. It will lead us into all kinds of errors. And so you see, Paul now, he comes with to Timothy saying, we have this great privilege 
as the church. As church, what that means is we've been adopted into the family of God. J.I. Packer says that adoption, this notion of being adopted into the family of God, is the highest privilege of the gospel. Now, in saying that, he doesn't want at all to besmirch a justification, this word that we use to describe how it is that God declares us to be righteous. We, we use this word justification. It's, it's the word from the sphere of the legal courts, from the legal sphere, if you will. And, and it's, it's this legal term that says, I pardon you. I forgive you. I declare you to be righteous in my sight. That's what justification means. And the ground of that justification, obviously, is the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. It's, it's his life of perfection where he obeys for us. It's his death where he takes the penalty of our sin for us. And, and then he rises to say, yes, it's been paid for, so that then God can be, as the apostle writes, just, that is moral, just, and the justifier of those who believe because it's been done, justice has been satisfied, his wrath has been quenched in that by, by Jesus. But it simply doesn't end there. It isn't that simply God pats us on the head and says, you're not guilty, go and be blessed and all that. He says, no, what this means is that we're now reconciled together. Forgiveness is to always lead to reconciliation. And so he says, now, forgiven people, you're reconciled to me. I am your father. You have access to me by prayer. I speak to you by way of my word. I give you my spirit to lead and to guide and protect. I'm at work as a loving father ought to be to bring good in every and out of every situation in the context of your lives. Now, some of us don't have a, a, a concept in our brain for a good father. And that's very sad, of course. So God says, read about me, learn about me, as I am the perfect Father. This is the way it ought to be. But you see it already, don't you? You see that household, family, is so important to us. Because God uses these very words of family to describe himself to us and describe us to each other. And so he says, please, dads. Live in such a way that when your children hear Father, that they know what it means. And when they hear Father, they say, oh yes, that's what I want, Father. And so when they cry out to Father, God, they have a sense of one who will listen and will be gracious and merciful and righteous. See, these God made family not just as a sort of something to keep us busy, but as an illustration for who, it, who we are in Him and reconciled to Him and who we are to one another. It shouldn't surprise us at all, then, should it? That the world attacks family, marriage, parenting, being a child and submission to parents and all of that. And the distortion that sin has brought. There's this great attack upon family both within and without. Within because of our sin and our pride and our selfishness destroys family relationships obviously. But also from without, because Satan is against this metaphor, it's against this activity, against us learning the value of what it means to have father who loves and mother who cares and, and brothers and sisters who support and encourage and all of that. Is he's against all of that, and so we see this great onslaught from within our own sin and pride, which causes difficulties in marriage and family, and also then from the outside as well, from this one who is a ruler and a principality and authorities and. In the spiritual realm, all of that behind it, it shouldn't surprise us at all when the world is against this family because this is who we're to be and what we're to, to know this notion of adoption, to be part of the family of God. And so Paul writes to Timothy, and I haven't time to delineate all of these points today, but Paul writes to Timothy and, and he says, listen, you're a family, a church family, Timothy, so run the church like that. You're going to have those who are marginalized, those who are in great difficulty, these widows. Now, here's how I want you to, to handle them. I, I want you to love them and care for them, but, but remember family, Timothy. 
Family is still important. Don't take the place of that. So family is still important. So if there's a true widow that is one who has no other means, no grandchildren, no children, nobody else who can help her at all, then, then church, come and help her. And there'll be a group of, of widows, those who are vulnerable, and, and women are vulnerable in our culture. They're vulnerable by way of creation. God made women to be helpers. God made women to bear children. God made women generally, uh, physically, uh, less strong than men. So women are vulnerable in the context of culture, always. Our world doesn't want to see that. They can't see that. There's all kind of laws against that. But it's just true. Sin doesn't make us stupid. It makes us silly sometimes, just foolish, right? We just can't see what's in for our very eyes. This is true. And so women are vulnerable, so Paul says, take care of them. The most vulnerable are those without husbands to care for them, so take care of them if there's no one to take care of them. If there's somebody to take care of them, let them take care of them. That's good. But, but, but take care of them. And if they're young widows, the best thing is encourage them to marry. Older women that aren't going to marry, he puts past 60 here, then put them on a list and, 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 and enable them to serve the church and care for them as they serve the church. Now, they have to be faithful. They have to meet certain criteria. They have to be, have been good wives and good mothers and, 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 and good servants in the church. And if that's true for them, then they have this great blessing. Put them on a list and say, come and serve the church and we'll support you. Well, don't do that with older women or younger women because they should marry. And, and if they make a vow to say, oh, I'll serve the church, they, they won't be able to fill that out because they're probably going to want to marry and, and then they're going to want to marry and then they're going to have to renege on their vow to serve the church. So, so, so don't put younger women on that list. That's all he means by that. Uh, so, so let them marry. By the way, young men, single men, I always smile before I say something that could make me in trouble. Single men, don't neglect women who are single and godly women who are single with children. Marry them. It's a good thing. It's the provision for their lives. There's more to it than that. Just don't go through the list. Say, you, come on. Right? Understand that? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's a good thing. It's a good thing. For a Christian man to see a Christian woman who's unmarried, walking with the Lord, has children, to understand that you're her provision in various ways. Don't, don't neglect that. It's a good thing. And then Paul comes and he says to, to Timothy, this young pastor, he says, listen, there's all kinds of trouble in the church. You have men who are angry and men who are quarreling even when they come to pray. You have women who are dressing inappropriately in the context of the life of the church who are taking authority where they shouldn't take authority and men who aren't taking authority when they should. And you have men who want to be elders but aren't qualified. And you have, the, 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 you have those who are teaching that which is false and, and it's distorting marriage and distorting even people's diets and what they eat. And they think it's spiritual to abstain from certain kinds of food and all of that. And then you have the general laundry list of sins in the context of the church of envy and jealousy and dissension and strife and all those kinds of things. By the way, if anybody ever has a hankering to go back to be a first century church, I don't. (laughs) Read about the first century church. It's no better or probably worse than churches these days. Just be realistic about it. It's just family has issues. We're family. So Paul says, here's how I want you to behave, Timothy. In the midst of all this, you're a young man. So when you want to rebuke an older man, I'm sorry, if, you want, if there's an older man who's in sin or, or disruptive in any way and you need to go to him, don't rebuke him. That is, don't be harsh towards him, but encourage him like you would a father. That's how you're to behave here because this is a family. And so if Timothy doesn't understand father, he's, he's, he's at a loss here. He doesn't know what that means. So Timothy, respect him as a father. As you go to him, you're not to show him up. 
You were to realize that this man may have made sacrifices for his family and his church that nobody knows and you'd never be capable of. Oh, you might be right here, Timothy, and he might be wrong here, Timothy, but as you go to him, realize who he is, realize the life that he's lived, lived, realize his age, realize his place and treat him as a father. And Timothy, if if there's an older woman who's out of line in any way, treat her as you would a mother. Now notice the difference of gender. Timothy would know that you treat an older man differently than you treat an older woman. In the same way, I have to tell you, and I can't describe this. Those of you who are dads know this. My daughters relate to me differently than my son. It's just different. I could describe it to you. You know, he smells, they don't, that sort of thing. This is the difference. We punches each other. They don't do that. We wrestled... I didn't wrestle with the girls. I mean, it's just different, but just how they approach. and There's just a difference there. You just know it. And Timothy should know that because growing up in a family, oh, yes, this is how I'm going to treat my mom. I, I, I'm reading one African commentator on First Timothy, and it's a bit fascinating. Not as fascinating as it would be if he hadn't been trained in the States. But, uh, um, but he said this. He said, if an African older woman ever feels insulted or disrespected by a younger man, She just looks at him and says, I could have given you birth. Yes, that's true. And there's something about younger men being dismissive of older women. There's something about boys growing up, and moms, you'll learn this when you're boys, if you have boys hit teenagerhood, you'll realize that there's something about boys and moms at that age where a boy just doesn't simply want to do what his mother wants him to do. Now, that's been true his whole life. But you'll see a qualitative difference in that because somehow he's stretching his wings to be a man here. And Timothy, you need to realize not to be dismissive of this older woman. Treat her as a loving son would treat his loving mother. And then, brother, younger men, that is men your age, Timothy, treat them like brothers. Well, Paul doesn't hit every single family relationships, but I think if Timothy were an older man, he said, Timothy, as an older man, treat the younger men as younger, as sons even, or younger brothers or as sons, the, the younger women as daughters, the children as grandchildren even, whatever, but those kinds of family relationships. But here's this one. I just want to mark it out. I know I'm running a bit late, but you're used to that. And it's summer. You don't have any Sunday school, so I've got to do a little extra. But he says, I want you to treat the younger women as sisters. And then he adds, in purity. Why the proviso? Why the proviso? Why does he say, Timothy, treat the younger women as sisters in all purity? Why that expression? He doesn't add that to anybody else, but but why that? And and this, because I believe Paul was a realist. He he got it. He understood. He understood the natural attraction between men and women. He understood the natural attraction between a young man and a young woman. So he says, Timothy, you're in danger here when you deal with young women, your peers, and I know that. So I want you to keep in mind that you're to treat them as a sister. And no brother in his right minds ever wants to carry on sexually with his sister. If you do, we all know what that means about you. But if, if you shouldn't. And so Timothy should go, okay, yes, no flirtation, Timothy. No, no secret meetings, Timothy. No long embraces, Timothy. No, no lustful thoughts, Timothy. Understand that. And we live in a culture today that denies that. That throws men and women together. In all kinds of situations, in all kinds of circumstances, it says, oh, this is okay. It's okay for you to be this close. It's okay for you to work like this. Uh, and, and the world just simply doesn't have a category for the obvious and the danger that that can be. Oh, at one time our culture did, but, but it no longer does. I mean, even in the silliness, you can see it in our public schools where sex education is taught and everybody knows that an eighth grade boy and an eighth grade girl would learn a whole lot more about sex if you separated them and put them in different classes. But we can't. And we see it in business. We see all the time men and women travel together, men and women work closely together, and people are amazed when affairs happen. Anybody who's on airplanes a lot A couple of years ago, as you know, I spent two years on airplanes. Um, I watched affairs happen. Because I often took the same flight on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday. 
and I watched the same business people get on and I watched men and women interact and I saw rings and I realized, oh. Paul says to Timothy, I know that even in the life of the church, be careful. So, of course, in our ministry here, we're careful. We have rules for all of us and how we meet uh, women. We never meet women alone as a man. As a woman on our staff would never meet a man alone. We always have doors open and windows open. We always are accountable. Uh, our secretaries always know who we're meeting with. Our spouses always know who we're meeting with. They may not know why, but they know who. And uh, we know, know that we're meeting with a woman. And we never do it on a long-term basis and all those kinds of things. Why? Because of this. Now, here's my heart. Well, it is for people in ministry. It can be devastating when pastors fail in this area. My real heart is for those of you, mostly men, I think, but women as well, in business who have no control over these kinds of circumstances like I do. I can tell people, oh, I'm sorry, I can't meet with you at that time or in that place. You have to meet me at the office with the door open or the window open or whatever. And, and my secretary needs to be here. There needs to be other people here. And, and you'll understand that. And if you don't, my boss gets it, right? And so I'm, I'm good, you know, I'm okay. I won't lose my job for that kind of thing. But I know you all are interested. I had two calls just last week, no emails, one email, one call, from young married women saying, what do I do? My husband works closely with women. And he's called to be here and he's called to be there. What do I do about that circumstance? Am I just losing my mind? Is this crazy for me to be even concerned about? And of course I said, no, it's not crazy at all. I understand that the context in which you live, how do you work that out? Well, on the flip side of that, in the church today, because I meet lots of people, there's this idea that it's all right for men and women to have close relationships even when they're married to other people. There are men who have close relationships with women, and the man is married. Maybe she is as well. And maybe that was a relationship, a friendship, that developed before one or the other got married, and so now here they find themselves. What do we do about this? Well, let me just give you a few points of counsel, if I might take just two more minutes before we come to the table. And this is counsel, because I don't find this explicitly in the Bible like this. All right? So this is counsel to you. You may disagree with this. If you do, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. First this. Marriage changes every relationship even those with the same gender. It just simply does. You don't have enough time as you once did. Now, I believe very strongly that men need to have friends with, be friends with men and women be friends with women, even in marriage. I think men need men, women need women. Uh, it just helps your marriage, right? You get to process differently. But even then, you don't have enough time. You don't have the same amount of time to go out with the boys or the girls as you once did. Of course not. And secondly, you have to be careful what you share because, you see, once you become one with this other person, that's your most intimate relationship at every level. And so that person is your confidant, really. Any other friend of the same gender of yours even shouldn't know about you anything your spouse doesn't know. There should be no secrets there as well. Oh, yes, you may process a guy with a guy, a woman with a woman, but, but be careful not to disparage this one with whom you are most intimate. Because if your spouse thinks that you share your life with another, a woman with a woman, a man with a man, your spouse will become very insecure about that. Some more than others, but most, yes. And so be cautious about that. And then you see it certainly changes relationships with people of the opposite gender. It, it must. So if you ever had a good friendship, if you're a man with a woman, before you got married, that, married, that relationship must change, first of all. If it was at all sexual, you need to end it. Secondly, uh, your spouse needs to know every time you have any contact with this person at all. Your spouse needs to read the emails if that's the connection or whatever it is these days. And thirdly, that relationship must change so that your wife is a part of it. So that that woman who was once your friend, if you want to keep her as a friend now, skips you and becomes a friend of your wife. And you then relate to her through your wife. And this friend would know that everything that she communicates to you, you communicate to your wife. 
And it's an open discussion all the time. And what that will do over time and what it should do from the very beginning really is to cool that relationship. A married man should not have a close friendship with a woman like that. Should always go in the context of family. And so when a man is in a close working relationship or a woman in a close working relationship with others of opposite gender, how do you deal with that? Well, as best you can, you stay out of those situations. If your job requires you to be in that, reevaluate your job. If you can't reevaluate your job and that's your job, how do you find ways in order to live above reproach? And the answer is as, as often as possible. Uh, you're accountable. Your wife knows who you're meeting with. She understands all those relationships. Doors are open every time they can be. Windows are open in office. Doors every time they can be. You never travel with another person of the opposite gender if you can possibly help it. You meet there and you meet in public places and you meet with as many people as possible. Use your head and take some risks. Not in the relationship, but with your employer and say, listen, I'm married. I love my wife. I love my husband. I respect my wife. I respect my husband. I don't want to be in these situations. Can you help me? You'll be surprised at how many bosses go, yeah, I'll help you. I understand that. Got to be careful here so we don't get sued. But I understand that position. Take some risks. Because you see, we're family. And family cares and loves and stays together and supports and encourages And that family unit is of such great value to us because we need to know, we need to realize, we need to understand how family works so we can understand how church works. Now, for some who have particularly bad family situations, of course, you come to church and you see men and women react with one another and live together in context of church and you say, that's what it's supposed to be like. That's how a man respects a woman. That's how a woman respects a man. You see, women should be safest at church. Marriage should be safest at church. Fathers shouldn't have to worry about their daughters being hit on at church. Husbands shouldn't have to worry about their wives being approached at church. Wives shouldn't, women shouldn't have to worry about being approached at church. It should be a safe place to be loved, to be affirmed, to be cared for. Safe place. And all of that, you see, because of the work of Christ. All of that because of what he did. See, in the night that Jesus was betrayed, as we know, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this. This is my body, which is given for you in the same way. He took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he says, take this. This is my blood, the very blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. When we remember the work of Christ, we remember communion. Our common union. We share a union with God. We've been reconciled to him. And because we've been reconciled to him, he is our father. And so we share a common union with each other as family. And so we relate to God as father. We relate to one another as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. And so when we come to this table, what we're doing is We're saying, yes, God, you are my father. I I, I take every privilege that is mine as your child to pray to you, to hear from you, to live in such a way that is pleasing to you, to receive your discipline in such a way for which I'm grateful and it transforms my life. And I also pledge myself to live with my church family, lovingly, caringly, respectfully. And so you see, as we come, older ones come looking at their peers as brothers and sisters, as the younger ones, as sons and daughters. Younger ones come looking at their peers as brothers and sisters, older ones as fathers and mothers. 
and we come knowing God has given us this provision that we might be cared for, that needs might be met, that we might grow and learn together and to serve Christ in a way that makes him, can we say, proud. For he sees his son in us. And his glory is reflected by us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us. That we would know who we are, that we would know that we belong to you, that you are Father and that that's good. We know that we are joined together with each other and we would relate to one another in ways pleasing to you as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. Father, I pray for us that we would be a people that would bring you glory by the way that we treat each other. People would see in the midst of church how it is that you design people, your people, your children to live together. So please work that in us. And as we come to this table, Jesus, meet us here. Help us. You know the very need that's in our mind, heart, even as we come. Transform us, I pray. Build our faith. Encourage us. Give us courage. Set aside, please, God, this bread, this juice, in such a way that we'll know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. He meets us here at this table. And it's his very presence in our lives. And this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord where he invites all those to this table who are his, the very children of God, by way of new birth, by way of faith in Christ. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And all those who desire to live in such a way that is pleasing to their heavenly father. So these two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of, cup, a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, realize, yes, I've been reconciled to God. He is my father. This is my family. Please come.